0: But go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, uh, we'll also have it on the screen if you don't have it. And if you would like sermon notes and don't have them this morning, I want to encourage you to every week, especially during 40 Days in the Word, to grab a set of notes. If you need a set, raise your hand and they'll, there's a couple up here, uh, they'll get them to you. Uh, If you need a pen, they have those as well. You'll notice that the messages in the recent weeks are a little bit different in style than normal uh, at Lifespring. And we have been sort of conducting a clinic of sorts about God's Word. And I just want to encourage you to engage in what I believe is some very important material. And... uh, Some of it might seem a bit scholastic compared to my normal style. Some of it might seem a little professorial. And this is intentional because I I really want you to understand some of these basic tools that if you employ these, they will enrich you for the rest of your life. At uh, university, I um, was toying with the idea of becoming a lawyer. And I got smart and realized that I wasn't really cut out for that. Um, but one of my electives, because I was interested in that, I took um, a class called Intro to Business Law. Woohoo! Exciting class. And I remember first day at the class, um, they told me what book I had to buy, and they showed it to me. The thing cost a hundred bucks, and it was like it seemed like it was eight feet thick. Um, maybe eight inches, and it weighed 15, 20 pounds. I mean, I would carry this thing walking, you know, like this, and, I, and she began to talk about the syllabus and all that, and I began, my eyes started glazing over, and it was about that time I thought, you know, for an elective, I could have taken advanced fly fishing, but here I am, an intro to business law, Woo-hoo. just a little overwhelmed. Turns out, though, that that was my favorite class of the term. That, but at the, at the first go of it, I wanted to run. And I think sometimes when we come to, to the Bible, particularly if we're new to the Bible, we look at it and we think, man, that's a big, heavy, black thing. It's just this big, thick book, you know. Um, and maybe you had one that was on the, the mantle at home, and it was even bigger and thicker, and it seemed like the bigger, the more spiritual you were in your family. I don't know. And, uh, and I've discovered something that even though it can be overwhelming, there's passages in the Scripture that are overwhelming. You look at them and your eyes glaze over. And you think, man, what is there anything in here? But the thing is, if you stick with it, if you stick with it and you ask questions, and you, like we looked this week, when you probe it, when you, when you speak it out, you know, when you picture it and you take time with it, I believe God's Word is just like God, He wants to be pursued. As I mentioned in our pre-service prayer this morning, it's, it, his kingdom is like a pearl of great price. And he wants us to, to, to go all in, to sell everything, to go, to go find it. And there's many of the, the greatest riches in Scripture require a little bit of work and sometimes a lot of work. And I think studying the Bible sometimes is like hunting for buried treasure. And, you know, sometimes when you're hunting for biblical or buried treasure in God's Word, you know, sometimes the nuggets are right on the surface. I think of John 3 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. When you read a verse like that, it's like walking along and and, jump, and and tripping over gold boulders, you know, and it's like, whoa, there's a huge nugget. You know, lift that one up and look at that, that's amazing. It's just right there. And then you come to a book like Leviticus. And you read it, and you're like, I need a new set of glasses. I need some caffeine. You know, but i got to tell you, there's some of the most incredible nuggets in that book. And uh, someday I'll find them. <laughs> this morning, we're going to talk about digging for buried treasure in God's Word. And we're gonna, we're gonna give you some, I'm going to give you some tools, four tools in particular, that we're going to use to dig in God's Word. And things that you're going to want to keep these tools around for the rest of your life. And then as we dig... We're going to look at some of the nuggets, some of the truth that's coming up, and we're going to admire it, and we're going to let it enrich our lives, all right? And so that's what we're going to do this morning, and before we head on in, I want to ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, would you open your word to us? Speak to our hearts. We trust you, and Lord, would you come and fill us with your word? We want to build our lives on a firm foundation, in Jesus' name, amen. So these four tools are really four questions. And as you know, we've been learning through this whole process in 40 Days in the Word that the key to learning from the Bible is asking good questions. And on screen, there's four questions that we're going to ask. Number one, the tool is called observation, and that's just simply asking, what does it say? When I read a piece of Scripture, just ask yourself, what is it saying? And as we're here's the thing, it's not reading the Bible that we're talking about. We're talking about studying the Bible. You know how you study, You know how you're studying the Bible? You know how to know when you're studying the Bible? Here's how you know: you have something else in your hand, a pen, a pencil. There's some paper there. Maybe there's your iPad, or you've got an app on your iPhone or your computer, and you've got notes, and you're you're engaging, or you've got like me a highlighter, and you're just Madly highlighting, you need to write in your Bible because then when you do that and you circle words, you think, "Man, what does that mean?" You put a big question mark by it. The best Bible is one that's just been written on, and and things in the margin and all that. That's how you know you're studying the Bible. So we say, or we ask, "What is it saying?" Number two is we we come to the tool called interpretation, and that is, "What does it mean?" When I read this, what does it mean? Some people would say, "Well, doesn't the Bible mean what it says?" Truth is not always. You can read something and it has a phrase in there and it doesn't mean what you think it says. The Bible means what it means. Let me give you an illustration. If, for example, I wrote a letter today and in the letter to my friend, I used a phrase like this. Dude, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. All right. Now, fast forward a thousand years from now, someone in another country speaking a different language is reading the ancient American English version of Chad's letter and is trying to decipher what he meant. And he's thinking, there's a guy in Milton, Washington, thousands of years ago who wanted to donate a part of his brain to someone who needed it. <laughs> Some of you are going to thinking, well, that, that actually explains a few things. But what else, what it means, right? But That's what it says. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. What does it mean? It means I'm going to confront someone with the truth. I'm a little ticked off. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. And so we need to understand that when we come to the text of Scripture, that there's a context. And that's how we know what it means. So, for example, if I were to, to just say the word, the word pin, P-I-N, what do I mean by that? How do you know what it is? I mean, because there's a bowling pin, there's a rolling pin, a push pin. You can pin the tail on the donkey. How do you know what that word means? Except that, you, that it's in the context of other words. That's how we know. So number two is interpretation. What does it mean? Number three is correlation. And that is what other verses explain it. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. So when you're reading a passage of Scripture and, you want, and it has a principle in it uh, and you think, wow, that, that, I've heard that somewhere before. There are tools, and I'll get into them a little bit later, Uh, If you have a study Bible, you can look and find out where there's other subject matter that's like that, and you can research that, and you can compare Scripture with Scripture. Number four is application, and that is what will I do about it? And here's the thing. If you try to apply, by the way, this is the most important part of all of this. It's the reason we read the Bible. It's the reason God wants us to be filled with his word. And if you try to apply something without proper observation, without proper interpretation and some correlation, you can end up doing exactly the opposite of what the Bible meant. Cults are really good at this. For example, if you took Luke 14:26, Jesus said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Huh? So you look at that and you think, "Wow, And, and here's my out-of-context application. So here's what you might say, hopefully not. That is, to prove my loyalty to Jesus, loyalty to Jesus, I must hate and reject my family. By the way, cults use this verse to get you to do exactly that and to be beholden to the cult leader. But if you look at the context of that verse and the the whole of Scripture, you'll you'll see that, you know, he says, Husbands, love your wives, Paul does. He says, he he talks about family and the importance of family, all from from Scripture. And we would know that Jesus must have been meaning something related but different than the application that we just came up with. And we would know that if we had studied and understood the context. And so this morning we're going to use these tools the observation, interpretation, correlation, and application to, under, uh, to dig up some nuggets of truth from one particular passage from Philippians chapter 2. All right, Philippians is a letter written by someone. His name was Paul. And Paul, the apostle, was in jail in Rome when he wrote this, and he was arrested for doing missionary work. He's writing to some Greek people in a town called Philippi. You could go there today. It still exists. And it's a place where Paul planted a church, so he's familiar to these people. And by the way, Philippians, the whole letter itself, it reads like a thank you note. And what I'm about to read is a passage of Scripture, which on its face seems just like some correspondence between two buds or three buds. You know, uh, it, it reads this way. Beginning in verse 19. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone else looks to his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him. Uh, As soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on On me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. So it's a fairly long passage, and at first glance, you might have really liked the, 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 the paragraphs before and maybe even the paragraphs after, and you might have thought, well, this just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot here. Why would God even include this in the Bible? Kind of like a personal note or something. Am I supposed to really take note of this? It might be even a passage of Scripture you'd, you'd skip over quickly. But we know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful to teach us, right? And we know that from Romans 15.4 that everything was written to teach us, and so when we come to a scripture like this, we need to understand that there are no accidents in the Bible. There's no uh, insignificant scriptures. And as you see, as you're going to see in a few minutes, there's something very, very rich here. And there's some nuggets that we're going to dig for. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you right now to take out your mental shovel. All right. And we're going to do some digging. All right. Our first tool is called observation. And we're going to ask, what does it say? And I'm going to make a really deep observation that probably no one saw. And it was this. Paul intended to send two men to the church at Philippi. You read that. You saw that, right? That's what he's talking about. That's, that's just basic observation. It says, I hope to send you Timothy, verse 19, and I think it's necessary to send Epaphroditus back to you in verse 25. So Paul's going to Send two men to the church at Philippi. Then we also notice this, that Paul endorses them as role models. This is my second observation. Endorses them as role models who deserve honor. Verse 20 says about Timothy, I've got no one else like him, like Timothy. And of Epaphroditus, he says in verse 29, says Epaphroditus, welcome a guy like this. Welcome him. Honor men like him. So we ask a question. What does it mean to be like these guys? What are they like? And we're going to look at five characteristics that are here in this text of a godly man. And we see them in these verses. Verse 20, Paul says, take a genuine interest. He takes a genuine interest. Verse 22 says that he has proved himself. I think these are on your notes as well. Verse 25 my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. These are things that he's using to describe these people. And in verse 26, he speaks of Epaphroditus, says, He longs for all of you and is distressed. In verse 27, he says, He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. There's five. I think right now we've, we've been digging and we're coming up to something and we, we heard a kind of a clank. Ah, there's something substantial here. So now we're going to take and we're going to sort of remove some of the dirt. All right? And we're going to employ our interpretation. What does it mean? What does it mean? This is actually a very powerful passage, especially for men. Especially for women who are looking for a man. And you, maybe you're a single gal and you want to know what a godly man ought to be like. Maybe you're a young person and you, you didn't have a model of a godly man. Here, here's a great example. And there's five marks of a godly man five characteristics that we are to build into our lives and we're to honor others that have these characteristics in their lives. And this applies for godly men and women, by the way. Verse 21, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Everyone else looks out for his own interest. Now, the today's English version says it this way. It says that he genuinely cares for you. Others care only about themselves. The, Philippian, uh, the Phillips version says this, that they are all wrapped up in their own affairs. You'll notice I had a couple of different versions here, and I encourage you to do that if you've got uh, other uh, Bibles handy at home, or you can get a couple of different ones. You can go online and you can see several different translations online. Uh, Blue Letter Bible does that, U uh, Version does that online. U Version, I know you got that. I've got that on my iPhone. And you can, you can pull up different versions. And so we've been digging, all right? And we're going to now come to the first nugget. Plank! And I've asked uh, Mary Bursch to come show us the first two nuggets that we're going to look at about what a godly man or godly woman is. Mary?
1: That's better. Um, well, first of all, thanks, Chad, for asking me to help this morning um, for two reasons. First is, I mean, it's always nice to know that somebody trusts you enough to not come up and totally blow it for you. But um, also, um, always looking for a reason to get a new outfit. So, thank you. Um, <laughs> okay, so let's just recap the first uh, two verses where it says. Uh, Actually, go to verse 20. It says, Paul's talking and says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone else looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that struck me is that this is Paul talking, and Paul's been around, right? Paul's seen a lot of churches. Paul has worked with many people. Paul has a huge ministry. And Paul is saying, I don't have anybody else like Timothy. And that just kind of struck me as a a little bit strange. Um, So even back in Paul's days, it was really rare to find a man that is our first point, which is a godly man is caring. A godly man is caring. So that's a rare thing back in Paul's day, but it also was a rare thing in our time today. Let's just think about it. What are some of the uh, advertising things that are out there uh books magazines slogans um everything out there in our society today is telling you to look out for number one to take care of yourself um here's a popular one you deserve a break today have it your way ladies because you're worth it right all of these things in our society that are very counterintuitive to what Paul is talking about here. It's a message that's just completely uh, opposite to what we get inundated with today, whether it's in words or what we hear on the radio or what we see with our eyes every day as we're driving down the road. So as we're talking about that, Paul saying it's rare to find an unselfish man. That's what being a godly man is. It's being caring. It's being others centered. It's being others focused. It's being unselfish. He says Timothy genuinely cares about you, it's caring about other people. So I'm going to give you a couple of things that uh, might be just the the list is long and distinguished of the characteristics that you can have, things that you can do to show how um, godly and caring that you are. Uh, Guys, These are things that you can aim to have in your life. Parents, these are things that we need to be instilling in our young men, teaching them what it means to be a caring man of God. And girls, as Pastor Chad was saying, it's something that you need to be looking for as you're thinking about finding a life partner. These are important things that you need to be aware of. Keep your eyes wide open. Um, Some things are you ask for the other person's opinion, is it not just about you? Are you open to other people's suggestions? Do you go out of your way to make somebody feel welcome and involved? Guys, do you open doors for women? Seems like a tiny thing, but it really is putting other people first. Do you pick up your messes, or do you expect somebody else to pick them up after you? No elbowing. And so then we go on to the next part of the passage here, and it says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So that verse right there, it says Timothy has proved himself. So go ahead and circle that, proved himself. And the word proved there means tested. It means verified. It means he's been checked out. He's passed the test. This guy is ram-tough, he's dependable, he's reliable, and he's faithful. Over and over in the Bible, we see the word faithful attached to many of the amazing faithful men in the Bible. And then this quote is in here, and I want to say it twice because I think it bears repeating. It says, the greatest ability in life is dependability in life. The greatest ability in life is dependability in life. The number of people who are dependable, who don't flip-flop, who stick to what they believe in, who keep their word, who do what they say they're going to do, keep their promises, even when it's really, really hard, is pretty slim. And that's what number two is. God is looking for men who are caring, and number two, God is looking for men who are consistent. He's looking for people that are going to keep to their convictions are going to be willing to die for what they believe in? You know, unless you've made that list, I would die for this, I would die for this, I would die for this. You know, you're just kind of existing. God's looking for consistent men and women. He's looking for people that are going to be proven reliable. They're committed to a standard that they've held on to in their lives. They don't act one way with one group of people and after another way with another group of people, they live their lives according to the gospel, according to Christ, regardless of who they're with and regardless of the circumstances of their life. The saying is kind of cliche, but it's true. If you don't stand for something, then you're going to fall for anything. And Paul is talking about that with Timothy. He's saying, Timothy has proved himself steadfast in any situation that's come his way. He's proven faithful and he's proven true. And then the next verse says, I send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. And he gives us three metaphors here that are relational brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. And he says, He's also your messenger, because you sent him to me to take care of my needs. You sent him to bring me good word of you. And that's going to be our next point, Pastor Chad.
0: Thank you, Mary. you did that so well. I was just wondering what are you doing next Sunday The verse that she just quoted in there are three uh, characteristics of cooperation he said uh, he t- he talked about Epaphroditus being a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. And as a Christian, this reminds us that we're in several things. Number one, we're in a family. We're in a family. We're related. We're brother and sister. That phrase, brother, sister, 133 times in the New Testament. And a church is really a family. He's reminding us that we're in a fellowship. We've been given the same task, the same mission. And therefore, we, we've got to work together. We're also in a fight. If this is a battle. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. He wants to trip us up. He wants to steal our faith. And so we need to support and defend each other and encourage each other. It's one of the reasons we have small groups. Or we have life groups. So we can do exactly that. And so number three, for a godly man, a godly man is cooperative. A godly man knows how to work with others. He's a team member. He's not difficult to work with. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, who's writing this, is a one-man church-planning machine. He's a spiritual superstar. He literally will give his life for the cause of Christ. And yet, this muscular Christian, this man of God, who we're reading his letters as Scripture today, understood that we're more effective when we work together, Paul needed people too. In fact, this letter is an example of his need because it's literally a thank you note to the church in Philippi for an offering that they sent to him. So a godly man is cooperative. Now look at verse 26. Speaking of Epaphroditus, it says, He longs for all of you, and he is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Why was he distressed? Epaphroditus was distressed because they were distressed. He was worried because they were worrying about him. You see, he's concerned about other people's needs. Number four, a godly man is considerate of others. Is considerate. Considerate. And he's concerned about the feelings of others. thoughtful of the effect of his words upon them and his actions toward them. I've heard people say, I just do what I want, I just say what I think, but think about this. You know, babies do whatever they want to do, they think, they say whatever they want to say, and that is good if you're a three-year-old, right? Apparently someone's resonating. That's good for a three-year-old, but it, it's really a bummer if you're an adult because it comes out very insensitive, rude, immature. You see, a mature person knows when to hold it in, knows when to restrain, has the self-control to be able to say, you know what, I don't need to say exactly what I'm thinking. Because I could tell you, if I said exactly what I'm thinking half the time, most of you would have left this church. Because I, the stuff that goes on in this head, it ain't pretty. And I'm glad I have a cork and I'm and I just think stuff that just does he really think about that? Yeah, but fortunately, I can rebuke those thoughts and I can not say them. And it's just I've learned that when this mouth opens, it has extreme power and it can it has the power to encourage and it has the power to build up. It also has the power to destroy. This is especially important with the relationship between husbands and wives. Married men, Peter wrote in First Peter chapter 3, Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. By the way, we're now employing the principle of correlation, by the way, where we're actually looking at where it talks about being considerate and in another passage. And he's saying being considerate as you live with your wives. Men, we, if we're honest, we're, we're, we're not by nature, most of us, very considerate. Of the differences of the women in our lives. And I would, I would say probably naturally women, you're probably not all that concerned sometimes about the differences in your husband or the men in your lives as well. Think about communication, for example. We communicate very differently, don't we? The differences between men and women are so amazing. Um, I think in every, in, every man today lives this inner caveman. You know, I grew up in a house of six boys. I was the youngest of six. And sometimes we could go an entire week without speaking a word. We would just grunt, push, you know, shove. And we communicated perfectly. I knew exactly what the grunter wanted. And I brought some of that into my marriage. My poor wife has discovered. The other day we were in the bathroom getting ready. And we were doing the brushing of the teeth and the brushing of the hair and the whatever and and uh, she has a sink and I have a sink and I wanted to pull open the drawer uh, to get my uh, uh, deodorant out and uh, because I was really stinky and I needed to get my deodorant out and she was standing in front of the drawer and okay it's morning I haven't had my coffee you know I'm just kind of like so I kind of pulled the drawer a little harder and she's kind of like doing this and then I kind of just gently you know go like this And she just kind of goes like this, you know, just folds her arms. And then she, man, you hate this, don't you, when they do this? The slow turn of the head. I began to wake up at that moment. You see, I thought by tapping her gently, I was saying, dear honey, I'm sleepy and tired. I need to deodorize myself. Could you please move so I could open the drawer? I was convinced I had communicated that in great detail. She, on the other hand, had heard this. He's shoving me out of the way and won't even tell me why or what he wants. How insensitive, inconsiderate, and rude. Ladies, can you say amen? Yeah. Men, you all, we're, all right, we won't go solidarity. We'll just be bad for us if we do that. You know, there's sexual differences too that we need to be careful about. And if you're not married, you're going to get married someday, and you're going to want to know this. And uh, for husbands that you know the differences that, that, that you guys are very, very different. Now, I have done a lot of research, 25 years of uh, clinical trials in my own home. Um, there is uh, I have marriage counseling, probably 15 to 18 years under my belt. I've done a lot of research. And if you want to know the differences between men and women when it comes to the area of sex, I want to show you the, the, how, how men think and what men need. It's this. With men, it's either, they're either on or off. That's it. You know, that, that's it. Now, when it comes to a woman, here, here's what a woman is like. They are complicated. Men, can you say amen? They are. They have everything is connected, you know. And you, you, men, you can all identify. If you're married, you know, Homer just confused and, and knowing that, that she's very complicated. And it's just there's these differences between men and women. And so we need to be considerate of them, we need to be thinking of their needs first. We have a choice. We can fight the differences and be inconsiderate and selfish. And I would just say, if that's you, how is that working for you? Or we can embrace them, be sensitive to them, and meet the needs, the different needs that each one of us has. Verse 27, speaking again of Epaphroditus, indeed he was ill and almost died. He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you couldn't give me, Paul writes. He's talking about an incredible man. Number five, a godly man is courageous, courageous, fearless. And notice what Epaphroditus is courageous about. He's not courageous for his own benefit. You know, this isn't, you know, going to, to, you know, do something great so he can be a, a millionaire. He went on an inconvenient journey for the benefit of another church. He put the cause of Christ before his own comfort. Understand this, Paul is in prison 800 miles away from this church in Philippi. This uh, Philippian church is in Greece, and they take a love offering for Paul. And understand, there's no planes, there's no trains, there's no automobiles. There's The fastest form of transportation then is probably a chariot. And you wouldn't take a chariot for an 800-mile journey, and that's what this is. This is an 800. Thanks San Jose, which I just did, drove San Jose to... Uh, Tacoma. I did that last Sunday. That's why I wasn't here. 800 miles, almost exactly. And Epaphroditus is taking the offering and walking 800 miles. Offering counters of today's offering. I said, hey, you know what? There's a church in San Jose. I want you to, to pack up your bags and I want you to walk 800 miles to San Jose. You look at me and go, dude, you're nuts. You know, why don't we take a 150 bucks out of there and get a one-way ticket? No, that's what Epaphroditus did. He walked the whole way. Are there men like this today? There aren't very many. It's rare. Most would say, you know, I'll live for Christ when it's convenient. Men, some of us, we forget church when there's a good game on. Or we check our watches and leave early to to catch the game before it starts. But you see, God uses courageous people who serve him even when it's inconvenient and uncomfortable. People who put service before security. People that take risks for God's kingdom. Serve God and others with reckless abandonment. In verse 29 and verse 30, it says that literally he's hazarding his life. That's the, the way that the, the, the word is translated in, in, in the Greek. It's literally a gambling term. It's to stake everything on a roll of the dice. You see, Epaphras, Epaphroditus was a gambler. And when I, I look around our world, I see men betting their lives on the stupidest things, things that won't last, guaranteed to disappointment, uh, guaranteed to disappointment. But Epaphroditus, he has bet his life on Jesus Christ. That's why he would walk 800 miles to take a little offering from a little church in the middle of nowhere to a prisoner in a jail cell in the center of Rome by the name of Paul. That's just crazy stuff. That's crazy stuff. I wonder, is your commitment to Christ deep enough to cause you to risk anything? I think today Christianity is filled with many weak, kind of toothless religions. Where well, there's no challenge, no commitment, no sacrifice. And sadly, in many places, no real heroes like Epaphroditus. But you know what? I love LifeSpring because I see this room, men, godly men, filled with courage. My dad, you've heard me talk about him before. Last week, I got to go to, the reason I wasn't here was I was in San Jose, California, at a uh, kind of a, a reunion of sorts It was the Young Life Association um, Legacy Banquet, and it was for uh, people who have a history with the Young Life Organization, which is an organization that reaches out to teenagers. And my parents were pioneers in that in the uh, 50s and 60s. And they did a big work in San Jose and an amazing work in Phoenix, Arizona. And so during that time when I was there, I heard people mentioning my father's name. And this is how they spoke of my father. You know, your dad was the, the camp speaker when I gave my life to Jesus do you know that your dad uh, would uh, embrace me when nobody else would and I gave my life to Jesus? I mean, I probably heard this 20 times in just random conversations and then people would get up and speak and they would, in front of thousands of people, would honor my father in terms of the things that they did. And it wasn't even a formal thing. It was just, I, over and over I heard these people say, you know, there was this guy by the name of Skip Skilperord. That's my dad's name. Is my dad's name. And it's interesting, today, my dad is in a nursing home. And you know what my dad complains about most? It isn't the food. It isn't the fact that he can't go on a fishing trip with me. It isn't the fact that he can't go on a cruise. It's that he feels like, stuck in a wheelchair in a nursing home, that his effectiveness for God is limited. And that doesn't stop him, though. He takes his chair and he goes from room to room. Anyone who will listen, he'll talk to them about Jesus. He's a good man. He's living, even today, for something that really matters. Are you? If not, ask God to give you the courage, like a gambler, to go all in, all in for Jesus. And when we first read the text today, Kind of hard to see how this little thank you note had anything to say to us. we've just dug up some incredible nuggets of truth, haven't we? and we've only observed even so far two simple tools number one to be to, to take some observation and then interpretation. what does it mean? Third one is simply this that's correlation correlation. that is asking the question what? Do other verses say, or how other verses explain it? Is there anything else in the Bible that talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus? Well, we have two letters that talk about Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. That's a letter from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. Young man who ended up pastoring a church in the town of Ephesus. It still exists. You could go there today. I don't know if the church is still there, but Ephesus still is. He talked about Paphroditus. You can go to Philippians chapter 4. Just turn over a couple of pages and you'll find out that he actually did deliver the offering. And then you think, okay, these are the people that he talks about. What is the correlation, maybe the characteristics, the five that we just talked about? You know, uh, about being a caring and consistent, cooperative, considerate, and courageous. We can find those in other passages in Scripture. And so we go to things like a concordance. Um, and I would encourage you, uh, if you don't have one, you can get an exhaustive one. It's called uh, like Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Make sure that if you read, read an NIV Bible, you get an NIV concordance. If you read uh, a New American Standard version of the Bible, get a New American Standard concordance. Our Bibles have a small mini concordance in the back where you can literally look up a word and you can find verses that use that word. And uh, there's big, thick ones that you know that you can have. They you have them online. I have a, a program on my Bible, PC Study Bible. If you have a, a, a personal computer, if you have a, a Mac or a PC, you can use uh, the Logos software. And they have different versions. Some of them are, you know, entry level and and not that pricey. And then you can get, you know, a scholar's version that's a, a little more expensive. There's some great tools. Uh, there are in in, in these great uh, study Bibles. There are There are notes at the bottom. You see these notes at the bottom? There's a little commentary some of them have. I want to to challenge you with something. When you're reading the Bible, don't read the commentary. All right? Not ever. I'm just saying, when you start out, do not read the commentary. Read it last. Because here's the thing. If you read their commentary first before you do your homework, guess what you're always going to be thinking about? If I said to you, don't think about pink elephants, what are you going to think about Pink elephants. So you read their commentary and it says Paul did this and Paul did that and Timothy was this and Epaphroditus was that. You have all of that in your thinking. But if you do your own digging and you find the nuggets for yourself, you're going to enjoy it that much more. Because what commentary is in here is the product of their digging, their mining work, the nuggets they've found. And you know what? The nuggets they found might not be the nuggets that God has for you today. There are a lot of nuggets that the guy who writes the commentary in here has not found yet. fact i would say most of them all right so just a these are good instructive but go to them go to them after you've asked these these great questions then go to that Um, then we're going to talk about application and that is this what do i do about it what do i do about it this is the most important step It's the fourth one why is it important Let me ask you: Do you believe in the Bible? You do. You believe in the Bible, but you know what? You only believe the parts of the Bible that you actually do. Because if I say, "Do you believe in forgiveness?" If you don't forgive, you you don't believe in forgiveness. You only really believe the parts of the Bible that you do. That's why this is so important. And we've learned in the last three weeks ways to think and meditate on the Bible. We learned to pronounce it. What was the second one? We pictured it. And then last week was probe it, right? And when we probe it, what's that funny acrostic called? Space pets. Some A guest this morning is probably going, what in the world are they talking about? This is a strange church. Space pets is an acrostic. It's a study acrostic for us. And this is a great way to understand how to apply things. All right? So we Space pets is an acrostic for is there a sin to confess, a promise to claim, an attitude to change, a command to obey, an example to follow, a prayer to pray, an error to avoid, is there a truth to believe, is there something to thank God for? Space pets. So we look at that and we apply that to this passage of scripture. Is there a sin to confess in this uh, second uh, in Philippians chapter 2 uh, in verse 19? No. I don't see any sin here that we're asked to confess. Is there a promise to claim? Not, not one that I see right off the bat. Is there an attitude to change? Yeah, I think so. I see that. There's an attitude in Timothy and Epaphroditus. And we can ask ourselves, do I have their attitude or don't I? Is there a command to obey? Well, the answer is yes. He says, Paul does, about these men. He says, honor men like this. Oh, so I'm going to make a note of that. There's an attitude. There's a command. Okay. Is there an example to follow? Yeah, there is. There's five. Being consistent, caring, cooperate, cooperative, considerate, courageous. Is there a prayer to pray? Nah, I don't really see one. Probably not. Is there an error to avoid? Mm, not so much. Is there a truth to believe? I mean, there's an implied truth, but I don't see it too explicitly. Is there something to thank God for? Always, sure. Specifically in here, I'm not. You know, I'm not so sure. You you can obviously think of. If you think of somebody in your life that has these characteristics, you can thank God for them, sure. So here's a raw material for my application. I've got one command to obey, that is to honor. Honor. I've got five examples to follow, and I've got one attitude to change. And before we put this all together into an application, we need to understand three basic things about an application. Number one is we've got to make it personal. All right, it's got to be about me. You know, you read the Bible a lot of times and you go, hey, my wife needs to do this. Honey, you should do this. You should be more uh, patient and forgiving. That's really what you need, see? And men, when you do that, she almost always receives that and goes, gee, thank you, honey. I'm... Is, that, is that how she responds? Uh-uh. No, no, no. Make it personal. It's what you are going to do with what God has talked to you about, all right? Real change happens with you. All right, So make it personal. Make it practical and possible. It's not some pie in the sky, you know, thing that's sort of out there. It's real. It's something you could do. Uh, make it provable. In other words, it's identifiable. You can say, I did that. Instead a date. Right. Here's a suggestion for a couple of applications. Number one. Think of ways to honor people this week who model these qualities. And I got to do that last week. In front of that group of people I mentioned, I got to honor my Young Life leader when I was a teenager. His name was Bob Scudder. And I thanked him for the impact that he had on my life. Because I was impressed at all the people that were thanking my father for the impact that he'd had on theirs. That when it was my turn, I got to thank Bob Scudder, for the impact that he had on my life. Last night I spoke with a good friend, my friend Rick Ryan. I love talking with Rick. We sometimes will talk for an hour at a time. Had a great conversation. And at the end of the conversation, I honored him. I respect him very much by telling him how much I appreciated his encouragement and wisdom. Because I believe he is a godly man like Timothy and Epaphroditus. I know he is because I know him very well. Many of you have met him as well. So think of ways to honor people this week. Number two, ask which of these five qualities am I going to work on? Do I need to be caring, consistent, cooperative, considerate, courageous? What do I need? Don't get overwhelmed when you're doing an application. And there's When I read the Bible, there's a thousand things that I fall short in. And it's like, okay, God, where do I start? Just pick one this week, all right? Just pick the one that you lack the most and say, God, I need that more than any of these things. Cause, or maybe the thing that, that is, may, maybe this week is highlighted that you were very insensitive to your wife or to your husband or to a friend or something. And, and you can highlight the thing that you need from this. And just focus on that one thing because that, that's going to be hard enough trying to begin to build that into your life. And then set a, set a timeline, when am I going to do that In what situation am I going to do that? And be very, very intentional and honor that person. People, our culture honors and idolizes some of the smallest, shallow people that have ever lived. Put them on magazines, on TV shows, and then we laugh at them when they act like total idiots in life. For some reason, we get a sick pleasure about how messed up these rich, shallow people are in our pop culture. And our church, our, I mean, our, our culture idolizes these people, honors them. And Pastor Rick Warren said it this way. He said, you know the sun is setting on a culture when small men cast long shadows. People, we desperately need godly men and women with character and courage. You know what? When people see these kind of character qualities coming out of godly men and women, they take notice because you know what? It's in very short supply in our world, isn't it? And so you polish one of these nuggets in your life and you show it to other people and they say, man, I need some of that treasure. And people want to hang around and say, man... You got jewelry, you got bling in your life. You got serious bling. Why? Because the character of God, by His Holy Spirit and your cooperation and your faith, you're saying yes to God, and He builds His character in us. Philippians 2:19, it was one of those passages. Nothing really in it, is there? Nothing much. But I guarantee if you read it this week, I bet you'd find it at least 5 to 10, 15 other big nuggets that we never even talked about today. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the godly men and women are, that are in this place. I thank you for the godly men and women who are just growing up right now. Maybe they're boys and girls. And Lord, I just pray for that one person here this morning who might be in a decision place of of whether they want to go all in for you. And if that's you this morning, I feel like God would ask you, what is so important about life that I, God, am not that important to you? I feel like God would just challenge you that way this morning. Say, what is keeping you from going all in for me? What's keeping you? Why are you still playing games? And I think he would just come and remind us this morning of the incredible joy there is to be in a relationship with him. And if that's you this morning and you want to maybe come back to him for the first time or, or come back to him again and you, or maybe you just need to come to him for the first time. I just want to lead you in a prayer. And you can just pray this in the quiet of your heart. Dear Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for living for myself. Thank you for dying for me. Please, Jesus, forgive me. I'm all in for you. I want to be a godly man. I want to be a godly woman for you. I want to be courageous. God, if I'm going to gamble, I'm going to bet everything on you, on you, Jesus. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The last slide that we have here is the memory verse this morning. If I could have the team put that back up on the screen. Our memory verse, Psalm 119, verse 11. Let's say it together, is it there? Just give me the... Psalm 119, verse 11. Ready? Go. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, verse 11.